Thanks for joining me again on my podcast, The Big Chat, where we look at how brands, businesses and individuals can get an edge in today's digital world. I'm your host, George Hughes. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm the founder and creative director of Small Films, a creative video agency helping brands to connect with a wider audience with video. In this episode, I'm joined by Nipur Saxena. She's got a 19-year international track record in working with brands to accelerate commercial growth. She's worked with hundreds of household name brands and retailers, including Coca-Cola, Kraft Mondelez, Bacardi, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Amazon. Her company Split Second works with emerging brands to help them develop stronger relationships with retailers. In this episode, we talk about the different ways that you can get traction with retailers and the strategies you'll need to develop as an emerging brand. Noop, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'd love to know where it all started for you, because working with brands like Coca-Cola and Kraft, that's kind of big league stuff. So where did you, where was your first intro to retailers? I know you're from Holland originally, grew up in Canada. What was your first intro into that world? Um, well, I've always had a, a love for brands and um, been really passionate about some brands uh, in my youth. And I guess my first taste was during summer holidays um, when I got part-time jobs uh, during university. So I worked for Kraft Mondelez, uh, I worked for Novartis, I worked for different brands um, during my youth. And it was a lot of fun, but also I learned so much because it made me realize how much work, innovation, planning, and um, investment goes into growing these brands and, and sustaining these brands. Um, for me, it was almost like uh, a puzzle, you know, a puzzle that you had to put together to entice, you know, a, a, a customer. And that puzzle kind of thinking is, is what got me into strategic planning. Um, I headed up a, a function at Coca-Cola, which basically my brief was to engage um, different teams around the business and to, um, so that we had one joined up plan that we shared both with internal stakeholders and external retailers. Um, and that's where I really learned so much, met some of the you know, most dynamic people and, uh, and where I guess originally where my split second hat um, came on. So tell me about your company. So split second, you help emerging and existing brands to get traction with retailers. So who, who is it you work with? How does that work? So we work with um, brand owners of all sizes. Um, we work with emerging brands. We also work with existing brands. And often the brief comes from uh, sales or marketing um, senior players in the industry who um, are trying to get traction with the retailers. So it could be that they're trying to launch with the retailer for the first time. But um, sometimes it's also about, you know, the relationship with the retailer is quite transactional. Um, they're losing market share. Um, they're struggling to win the shopper over, and they they need to do something. and And that's where we step in and and work with them and their teams to ensure that um, we we turn that around. Um, and often, you know, it's really very simple things that 
we can pinpoint very quickly through this um, plan persuade profit um, methodology that we have and, and using uh, customer insight to help us get there. So just give me really briefly the sort of top things that you're normally working on with them to give them the traction they need with retailers. So it could be a retail pitch for new product launch. Um, it could be around um, uh, growing their market share. So reversing the decline of a category or a brand. Um, sometimes we work on shopper marketing projects to see how we can um, get greater uh, shopper engagement in store or online and the kind of campaigns that we would develop. But everything we do is based on customer insight. So there's nothing we would do that wouldn't um, start with customer insight. Or it could be also um, an innovation project where they say, look, we're thinking about launching X brand, um, but we're not sure if it's going to resonate with shoppers. Um, let's develop a, a strategy on that. So I guess to top line it, really we can work with clients on a brand strategy, um, a retail strategy, which is often called a go-to-market strategy, um, and also a customer strategy, which would link back to customer insight. So it is an incredibly competitive landscape for brands. A very exciting time for emerging mm -hmm. brands, but it's definitely fairly challenging. What are the sort of um, biggest things they have to look out for at the moment? I'd say the number one thing that brands should be thinking about is their customer. So, so many brands, big or small, uh, I've worked with, they start to think about brand first. And in terms of um, developing their new products, which is um, the right thing to do, that's great. But when you're taking it out to market, you need to understand the customer mindset. So who's going to buy your brand? Why should they buy your brand? What are they faced with in the category that they're competing in? Um, and so putting customer at the heart of your plans is essential for success. It is, I think it sometimes feels very difficult for a challenger brand to be able to, well, challenge a market leader. Is it, you know, is it, is it just a daunting prospect? Do they have the opportunity to take market share away from those companies or? Absolutely. Um, today, more than ever, um, in every category, in any supermarket or even department store, it's the challenger brands, it's the niche brands that are chipping away at the market share of the big brands. Um, we, we've seen a lot of that through the insight and data from the different data providers. And the reason for that is, is because those brands are born out of some sort of um, passion or, or story that they have of their own. Um, and there's a genuine, you know, authenticity to those brands. Um, there's a lot of other elements that have come into play that um, have helped propel those brands. So, for example, we there are five macro trends right now that are underpinning everything in the market. And there are things like um, uh, instant gratification. So most of us, we, we want something right now available 24-7, you know, premium, indulgence, and so forth. So instant gratifications is one of the key mega trends that um, brands, uh, emerging brands, and other brands, to be fair, are tapping into. Another big trend is um, different like me. So the trend of offering something customized and personalized and bespoke like Amazon does, you know, it remembers what you purchased the last time, it offers you something you might want the next time. 
Another big trend is living the good life. So health and wellness, massive trend. So many emerging brands are tapping into this. Uh, anything from coconut water out there to vitamin water. That's something that you put into your body that's really good for you. Because um, yeah, I read that um, you know last year, uh, uh, sale of vegan products or that more sixteen percent of all new products released were vegan. Yeah, you know double the previous year, which is a sort of huge increase and shows that that you know the innovation and following trends is quite a sort of prevalent thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you hit uh, hit the nail on the head because. Um, vegan is is a great example of something that was quite niche at one point and now it's become a hashtag social movement that you see on Instagram all the big retailers have a, a vegan range um, veganary mm -hmm. um, you know those kind of things didn't exist five ten years ago whereas now they're perfectly acceptable and in fact quite cool and trendy mm -hmm. um, a lot of Millennials are, are abandoning alcohol um, and that's also another trend that's growing. So, you know, the rise of millennials uh, pushing the boundaries mm -hmm. has forced, you know, brand owners to also push the boundaries in terms of what they're going to, to put out there in the marketplace. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think, um, you know, it, it feels to me like uh, an advantage that a smaller brand might have mm -hmm. with a, a, a swiftly changing trend is yes. that they can react quite quickly because they're a lot more agile than say a very big brand where there's a lot of gears that need to sort of put it, you know, connect and put into motion before anything can really happen. Would that yeah. be right? Completely right. Yeah. I think um, having worked with a lot of the big brands, they're also very aware that this movement is happening because they get pressure from the retailers to offer something unique and different, even with a, you know, a brand that's recognizable, but what are they gonna do differently to cater to, to these new emerging trends? Um, so they're under that pressure as well. And it's all about offering choice to the end shopper. So it's to drive that traffic into retail. And if you have a brand or a proposition that can do that, both for emerging brands, but also for existing brands, then you do have you know, lasting power. Um, and, and a couple of other trends that I wanted to highlight, the, the macro trends. One is around the conscious consumer. So, you know, with um, the awareness of climate change, uh, there are brands out there that are tapping into um, social messages and things that are not just to do with the earth, but also there's a great brand out there called Tony's Chocolonely. It's a, it's a Dutch brand. Um, that's known as the anti-slavery brand. And they are bringing uh, a very clear message to um, society, which is um, the, brand, the brand was actually born uh, out of the fact that three journalists went to Sierra Leone. They found that um, the cocoa plantations were full of child labor and they want to put a stop to that. So their mission is to stop um, slavery in the cocoa plantations. And out of that whole process was um, this chocolate brand was born called Tony's Chocolate Only. So, you know, and the reason why they're successful and they're a premium brand is because they are, you know, they represent something bigger, a bigger purpose, a, a higher mission. And that's what people want. They want to understand what does your brand stand for um, and be transparent with your message. So, you know, those are the kind of messages that are coming to the forefront. That's very much a, a kind of millennial 
um, take on things, isn't it? I feel yeah. that, uh, I don't feel this, this is something that's quite well known, that millennials speak quite passionately about mm -hmm. things like climate change and that they buy, they make their purchase decisions based on, on wider issues, not just whether they like the product or if they like the packaging. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very different, George, to what was happening, say, in, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, where people were pushing the brand through advertising and, you know, brands had a, a status. Absolutely. And we've seen that through different eras. So, you know, at that point we were in the brand era. The 90s and the early 2000s were, was very much around the retail era where the retailers uh, used uh, their outlets as a as a environment to entertain and entice shoppers and now we're very much in the customer era so millennials are definitely uh, one group that's driving this change and with the co combination of technology which brings me on nicely to the the last macro trend which is connectivity so the millennials want brands that connect with them not just from a, a technology point of view through social media and various um, social platforms but also you know from an emotional perspective what's going to resonate with me might be totally different to what's going to resonate with you um, and millennials again um, are the group that basically um, brought that to the forefront. But I have to say, more of us are, are you know, embracing this change, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I finally got round to reading um, Simon Sinek's uh, Start With mm -hmm. Why mm -hmm. um, book recently. And it's, it's interesting looking at certain brands that have a really strong sense of purpose, mm -hmm. and differentiate themselves not by their products, by their, their reason for being in existence, you know, Apple being the famous one that's, you know, it's all about thinking differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that uh, for me, I feel like the brands that have that strong sense of why that the consumer can really see that yeah. are, are far more likely to survive than a company that's just, it's all about the bottom line and, you know, squeezing as much as they can out of their consumers. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the why comes from something we touched upon earlier is, is the passion and the reason of of being so what is the the brand's reason of being and where what was the you know initial little acorn or light bulb that you know brought it to market um, and turned it into a brand mm -hmm. and people want to hear that you know there's so many brands that i talk to that are you know have been around for a long time but they f keep forgetting to share what brought them to the market in the first place or what was their initial light bulb moment and then there are other brands that are going back to that going back to their roots and back to um, you know what what got them excited to convert um, this little acorn into a brand and and that's what people want to hear not just millennials but you know everyone wants to know where where was the born uh, the brand born from so that they can connect to it because mm -hmm. often you'll get that sense of resonance um, and you know when you explain what your higher purpose your mission or your your uh, story is that's when people will really get to know you and feel like there's a, a greater connection through that intimate um, understanding of, of one's story i feel like uh, you know a, a smaller brand and more uh, you know startup or an emerging brand they're probably likely to be quite connected with their why because mm -hmm. they're, they're formulating it straight away. I imagine that 
uh, for a very big brand that's lost sight of that, it's probably a lot harder to actually get back in touch with the roots. I know we frequently see um, videos being put out by very large brands where they're trying to retell that story of their, their birth and how they all got started. Jack Daniels being one that's quite, quite a common, they're talking about old Jack, you know, the original guy that used to brew the whiskey. They're trying to kind of reconnect with their roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's, it's great for startups that they have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And they clearly uh, understand millennial mindset and they're trying to, you know, play to that slightly. Uh, yeah, I think ultimately it's about understanding your customer, um, whether it be millennials or, or another target group. And, you know, we have a very simple three-step um, a process that we take our customers through and it's really about planning your roadmap, persuading your target and profit long term. And you know, the persuading your target is it's an interesting one because some of the biggest brands in the world often miss that step because they are very much focused on their brand, which is wonderful. But you need to um, also understand who is your target. Um, and, and that target stage is in two stages. So if you're going into retail, you need to first, you know, understand your retail uh, target. So it's going to vary whether you're going into grocery or food service or fast food, whoever it may be, whichever channel it may be in. You need to understand how, um, you know, what the dynamics are in that channel, but also how your customer behaves differently in that channel. So, for example, if I'm at the gym, uh, my needs are going to be very different to when I'm indulging on a Friday night, you know, with a glass of wine in my hand, it really will differ. And when you understand the customer behavior and the customer mindset in those different environments, it enables you to take that same brand, that same product, but tailor it in a way through um, communication and advertising and messaging so that it, you know, um, resonates with the, the different behaviors in those different environments. Is, is it right? I mean, your company is called Split Second, mm-hmm. and it's all about how do you make uh, a customer, how do you make a, a per, someone make a purchase decision in a split second? Because mm-hmm. that's all you've already got. Is it is it true that uh, it takes just someone just two seconds to make a decision about buying something? Indeed. In, in a in a retailer, is that yeah, right? That is right. So the average um, is is two seconds now. Um, whether that's online or in store, it does vary by category, obviously, but it's anywhere between two and six seconds. So, you know, our our mission is really to help clients with, if you only had two seconds um, to make, you know, the right impression to ensure that, you know, that product, your brand is chosen in those two seconds, how are you going to do that? And the answer is very simple. It's start with the end in mind. So think about that. Um, you know, at point of purchase decision making, when they're just about to choose one brand over another, what are they going to do to, what have you done to ensure that they pick up your brand? And when I say to start with the end in mind is if you've gone through those steps that I've highlighted, so the plan, persuade, profit, um, that's, if you've done your due diligence beforehand and you work back from that point of purchase decision, that moment, that's when when you know you have a greater chance of traction when when you're in market. Often, big or small brands, what they do is they think brand first. And, you know, they go into a retailer, they talk um, to the brand about, sorry, about to the retailer about their brand, um, which the retailer does want to hear about. But it's about how are you going to leverage 
what's going on in terms of the customer mindset, that shopper mindset. Mm -hmm. And as they're browsing the fixture online or in store, is it the packaging? Is it, you know, the, the comms on the, on the packaging? Is it a promotion? What's going to kind of sway um, and, and tip the, the balance in your favor? And it's all of those things, um, you know, combined that are going to um, drive the, the purchase in your favor. So I'm going to get on to, I want to talk about your methodology of, you know, plan, persuade. And what was the third? Profit. Profit. Plan, persuade, persuade, profit. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in terms of, you know, the biggest challenges facing, I mean, you, you help uh, businesses, brands to get traction with retailers, to get a good spot on the shelves to basically you know grow and Mm -hmm. and shift product right Mm -hmm. what are the challenges for brands when they're trying to get traction with customers ultimately what are their biggest biggest hurdles they have to overcome i think they need to look at the wider marketplace and by that i mean the category that they're playing in because often what they do is they go in with their brand um, but they they need to kind of step back as to what the customer and the retailer sees in terms of the broader category. So if, for example, you are in the crisps category, who is your competitive set? What does your competitive set offer um, versus what you offer? And you know what kind of relationship do they have with the retailer and also the shopper in terms of um, brand resonance and, and so forth? Then it's really around understanding the barriers of triggers to purchase um, in that category. So if I'm on a health kick, maybe I won't buy crisps. Maybe I'm only buying healthy products. Um, maybe I'm vegan. You know, so it's again tapping into those macro trends and ensuring that if you do have something in your portfolio that um, taps into some of these trends, then definitely put that part of the portfolio forward and communicate those messages. Often I find brand owners are, um, they have so much knowledge and, and they know their brands inside out, but they're so close to the brand that they sometimes fail to communicate what they already know. So it's really about you know breaking it down and looking through the lens of the retailer and looking through the lens of the end shopper. And that's, easy to to um, understand by doing a little bit of um, research so you can go and talk to customers in store or online um, do a few surveys talk to your friends and family even though you might not have a big budget there's there's quick and easy ways that you can get that customer insight and start to build on that Sometimes um, brand owners are very precious about their brands and they're like no 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 these are our brand guidelines so we're, we're sticking to it and that's fine if it works for you, but if you're not getting the traction with the retailers, then maybe you need to do something differently. And also ask the retailer, when you make contact with them, ask them for their feedback, ask them as to what criteria they're looking for, um, you know, what, how often is a range review that's taking place, because range review is the opportune time when uh, a new brand can potentially get listed um, with the retailer and that tends to happen you know once a year sometimes only every 18 months or two mm-hmm. years so there's a there's a cycle in retail that uh, it happens 
And I'd say to most brands, don't give up. Even if you've had some great conversations with retailers in whatever channel it may be in, um, you know, keep at it. Make sure that you build that strong relationship with the retailer, not just for your own purpose, but also try to understand what their objectives are. They're under a tremendous pressure. Retailers are, you know, under so much pressure and they rely on suppliers and brand owners for insight as to what are the changes going on in the category. And they are also, um, you know, very aware that there's only so much um, space in store or there's a bit more space online, but certainly in store, if you're working with bricks and mortar retailers, there's only so much um, space in store. And they, to be there's it's, it's such a fast-moving environment that to be honest they need to think about you know what am I going to list and um, if you can make their lives easier by understanding what their key KPIs are and giving them the right insight and the right um, information as to how your brand is gonna not just grow for yourself as a brand but also for the wider category because that's how they think they think in categories um, you also need to bear in mind that, you know, if you're dealing with a grocery buyer, they are, you know, responsible for a certain category. And in a, in a strange way, they're competing with their fellow buyers in, in that specific retailer. So they have to think about not only the wider competitive set, one retailer versus another, but if I'm a crisp buyer and you're a confectionery buyer, then, you know, we're potentially competing against space. And if my category is not selling, then you have a chance to, you know, widen your category and take that space away from me and, you know, list some of your brands. So anything a brand owner can do to make the buyer's life easier, do it. <laughs> it's, it's funny to hear you talk about that because I, I guess for a, for a brand owner or a marketer or a person in sales for a brand, you sort of got two hurdles, haven't you? You've got the dealing with buyers at retailers, but you've also got the end mm -hmm. consumer. So you've got to do your marketing to sort of prove and get popularity for the brand. But you've also got to negotiate with the with the retail buyers. Um, what what would the retail buyer do you think be looking for in terms of um, things that you could demonstrate to them to prove that that out there your brand is loved and liked? And is it about social media? Is it about feedback from customers that have done sampling? What would be the things to prove to them that your brand is a great one for them to have? It's, it's absolutely the, the points you've mentioned, but customer insight, um, you know, is, is so broad and any way you can get your hands on customer insight is so helpful to a retailer. Now, if you can get customer insight for that specific retailer, then, you know, that's an A++. Um, and just going back to a point you highlighted a second ago, George, which is around the different elements to think about. So, you know, at Split Second, we, we have an approach called Through the Lens. And Through the Lens is a three-pronged approach, which is really looking at things through the lens of a, a brand, um, a customer, and a retailer. And that is, you know, the amazing, I guess, trilogy of customer insight that you should put into any plan. So whether it's the likes of Coca-Cola or, you know, PepsiCo or Unilever or any of the big brands, they are, the reason why they're so successful is because they think through those three lenses. It's something we call the triple win. 
So I'd urge any brand owner um, to think through the lens of, of those three, um, uh, you know, parties and to get as much insight um, for, for those three lenses. So for example, you know, most brand owners do have great customer, uh, sorry, brand insight because they know their brand and the brand was born out of, you know, an acorn or some sort of insight and they're able to articulate that really well. Um, the retail insight is also quite important. So when you're going to see a retailer, it's very important to tailor your brand strategy to that specific retailer and to demonstrate that you know and understand um, the shopper in that retailer. So whether you're pitching to a restaurant brand or to a grocery brand or to you know someone in food service or any of the different channels that are out there, it's so important to uh, you know, demonstrate that you've thought about that retailer, but also how the shopper behaves in that specific environment. And so, um, you know, as niche and specific you can get with your shopper insight, your customer insight, that's what's going to, to get you listed above your competitive set. And if you can put those three elements in your retail pitch, then, then I'm pretty sure you're going to get um, success. That's great advice. Very good. Uh, what about, so tell me about the, the Persuade plan, plan Persuade Profit. Mm -hmm. Just explain that, that whole sort of, um, those three steps to me. Mm -hmm. So Plan Persuade Profit was born out of the fact that I set up the, the commercial planning process for Coca-Cola almost 12 years ago now, um, long time ago. Um, and it's commercial planning process is something that a lot of um, the larger brands, blue chip brands, um, have established within their organization. So before they go out to market, it's about the internal planning process. So traditionally that used to be brand planning and brand planning is absolutely one part of the commercial planning process. Um, and we talked about, you know, retail planning, go to market planning, as well as customer planning. Um, and plan persuade profit really for me came out of the fact that you know, I was surprised after leaving Coke, how many um, brands don't actually plan. They're so quick to get to market and, you know, put in promotions and get involved in all the tactics. So social media and communication and advertising, which is really important, but you need to think about all the elements. Now with, with plan, that's about your what do you do back at the ranch? And within each of the stages, we have three sub-stages that we um, work with brands on. Now, we're not saying that you have to do all nine different elements because you might be really strong at some of them already, but at least it gives you a menu of options and a framework within which you can operate. So in terms of plan, the first stage of plan is prize. What is your size of the prize? Why do you feel that there's an opportunity to go after? And it's mapping that out and understanding what, you, what you're going after and also how you're gonna convince a retailer that there is a, a commercial viable opportunity that you're gonna go after. The second one is around prospect. So we think about customer first um, rather than brand first. We really believe that customer insight is going to 
guide and navigate your brand into this very competitive landscape. So prospect by getting that customer insight and understanding who you're targeting and what are the barriers and triggers to purchase and why will someone buy or not buy, you need to capture that very early on um, before you start building your brand because that is the magic fairy dust that's going to um, you know, give your, your brand almost a, a turbo boost um, to, to get it launched into market. And then the third one is proposition. What is your proposition? Um, your brand proposition, your retail proposition, what are you taking to market? So those are the three um, mini steps within plan. The second one is persuade. So persuade your target is really, as I said before, it's, it's two stage. Um, it's, it's one is around your, your end shopper, but it also before you can get to your end shopper, your retailer. So how are you going to um, persuade them? And the, the three stages within persuade are um, the pitch. So the retail pitch, are you ready? Are you retail ready? And um, we take customers through that and we help them win the buyer over. We have a, a strong checklist. And then the, the second stage of that is um, around um, building that retailer partnership. So I think often a mistake I see with, with different brands is they might get a listing, but then they walk away and then that's it. And it, to me, everything in business is about building relationships. And you know, once you get it through the door with a retailer, it's really about um, sustaining a long-term relationship. And it's not always about selling it. It could be about providing insight or um, developing new products together. They might be faced with a challenge that you can help them on. So it's, it's about that partnership element. And then the third P in, in Persuade is around purchase. So if you only have two seconds to get that purchase, um, what are you going to do at that point of purchase moment? So it's around brand execution. The shopper marketing, um, wh what's going to make your brand stand out um, on shelf or online or on mobile um, to, to ensure that purchase. And the last stage is, is probably my favorite, but it's probably the stage that most brands ignore, big or small, and it's about profit. Now, profit on the short, uh, you know, on the surface sounds like it just means, okay, I've, I've done my due diligence and I'm doing well and let's measure the return on investment. Yes, that's part of it. But profit long-term is not just about the financial return on investment. Absolutely, we measure that. And the first P in that is performance. And performance is about, okay, so you've done an amazing campaign or you've launched a brand let's go back and look at, did it work? Did everything you set out to do, did the plan work? And so often um, companies are not looking at, uh, looking back at what they've done and measuring the success or the learnings. They're moving on to the next thing, the next campaign. But if you don't measure the performance and um, reposition yourself, which is the next P, and course correct what you've done, you'll be in this vicious cycle over and over and over. Um, it, it, it's just not necessarily going to get you traction or resonance with your shopper. 
and I've seen some of the biggest brands in the world do this. They don't take the time to look at the insight um, to see if the plan worked or not. And I've heard, you know, some very senior people in the industry say to me, oh, but Noob, we've done this, you know, we've always done it this way. That's why we're doing it that way. And it's like, okay, but is it working for you? Is it changing anything? Um, so, you know, positioning and performance and positioning are absolutely fundamental to the long-term success of, of your brand. And um, the last one is payback. And payback is an interesting one. And this is, you know, very close to my heart. Payback is around payback to your customer. And it's about rewarding and recognizing your customer. Give them something, you know, that demonstrates that you've understood, you know, you're, you're thankful for their business and um, you've understood that, you know, they had a choice out there in that two second decision moment to buy one brand over another. You know, whether it's a little thank you, whether it's a little incentive, it doesn't always have to be financial, but it's just, letting your customer know that you're grateful for their business and their custom and that you've heard them. The other part of that is people um, within Payback. It's your own team. You know, if we don't recognize and celebrate our own teams and, and reward and recognize them, celebrate the success. Some of the best friends I've had the opportunity to work with as an employee and also as a, as a partner is they recognize their teams, you know, they celebrate those little wins, they celebrate the big wins, but it's supposed to be fun. You know, we're working with some amazing brands and it's supposed to be a, a fun job. And I, you know, I'm so passionate about that. And the last is thinking about the higher purpose, the higher mission, and it's really around um, payback to the global goals. So, you know, the global goals are the UN global goals. Um, that have been agreed uh, by by the UN and and, um, and we've only got till 2030 to hit these 17 global goals. And I think a lot of the brands already, um, you know, align to these these brand, uh, sorry, these global goals, but they don't necessarily communicate it. And it's about understanding what is your higher purpose and are you aligned to one of these global goals and let's unite as, you know, not just a brand community, but a wider social global community to um, achieve those global goals together. That's, uh, yeah, incredible about the UN global goals. I feel that, um, you know, it's, it's very easy for companies to focus on we just need to make more sales, we just need to grow, we need to get market share, we've got to keep the shareholders happy, all these sort of things. But mm -hmm. but actually, you know, as a business, you can you can do much greater things in the world. Um, and if you align yourself to a UN global goal, then you can start to make an impact beyond just selling products and, and doing what you do, which I think is great. It's really interesting all those things you're saying. I think, you know, a few things really resonated with me, particularly this focus on um, customer first, as you call it. Uh, you know, we, we talk about video audience first mm -hmm. and that, you know, if you want video that does get shared and that actually has an impact, you need to think about your, about your audience and create video that's tailored to your audience and provides them with value. I think you mentioned also about making sure you, you pay back your customers and make them happy that they've bought from you and just keeping them in the loop and keeping your people happy. There's a sort of, it's definitely a sort of a, a people focus, isn't there? Um, and I think also then measuring and learning from any campaigns and checking whether it actually worked is something that in video we also focus a lot on is trying to make sure you measure whether or not a video campaign mm -hmm. has worked. I can imagine that's quite common, isn't it, that people, brands em embark on massive campaigns of trying to do X, Y, Z and then they don't even 
look back and check whether or not it's worked. They've got no data. They haven't even celebrated the fact that it, it was a massive success or, you know, licked their wounds because it wasn't. Yeah, and I, you know, we work in fast-moving consumer goods. We are in a very fast-moving environment. Mm. And, you know, we live also in a very transparent world. Um, video absolutely is, is one um, window into a brand or into, you know, a higher purpose. And also, you know, online where today the customer has a voice, you know, they can rate you on Google, they can, um, you know, communicate with you on Twitter or Instagram or any of these social platforms. And it's not about stifling their voice, it's about using the insight, whether it's negative or positive, it's about, you know, using what they're saying to, to leverage your own um, story, your own brand and your own um, innovation pipeline. So I think um, people should really welcome the, the kind of um, transparency there is out there and also the, the voice of the customer. Yeah, I think you definitely have to be very much across the fact that Google really is a window into your brand. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing you, you can't hide at all. Uh, gone are the days when you were just a, a product on a shelf. Uh, so I think the tone of voice across social media, the reviews you're getting, making sure you're answering, um, you know, customer questions. And if you get trolled, then, you know, dealing with those trolls in the right yeah. way, all those sorts of things. And very, listen very to important. what they're saying. Sometimes the, the trolls have something, you know, they're trying to get across. And, you know, 90% of um, customers or, or people out there, consumers, are researching products before they make a brand decision. 90%. We all look on Google, we all look online as to, um, you know, what we're going to purchase before we actually make that purchasing decision. Millennials in particular, 89% of them want to hear from brands and, and have that brand engagement um, before they, they purchase or before they invest in, in that brand relationship. And, you know, like video, I think it's really around um, getting to know um, a brand or a retailer or a person or a consumer. But it's it's that long-term relationship that people want, you know, as, as long as there's some sort of relationship as opposed to a transactional kind of, you know, one-off purchase, that's not what people want anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to yeah. have that trust. Yeah, no, that's, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, in terms of your mission, I've, I've got this quote here that I've lifted from your, uh, your, your, your website and um, elsewhere. Our mission is to win the hearts, our mission is to win hearts and minds by walking in their shoes, mastering the power of persuasion in the art of brand seduction. Mm -hmm. I love that. Just explain that to me. So um, it goes back to, to the three Ps and um, really you, you, know, you have to step into your customer's shoes to understand what they want. There's no point launching a brand if it's just you know, you might have the best brand in the world, but if it's not going to resonate with your target um, prospect, then then there's no point because it's not going to sell. Um, and you know, brand seduction is is absolutely what what most brands strive for. But you know, in the competitive environment that we live in, then then you know, you're not going to get that unless you put your customer first. I'm so passionate about um, ensuring that you put the customer first and 
and that that is what gets commercial cut through. Um, and if if most companies who are listening to this this um, podcast or watching this video can start to build on that, then then it's job done, you know, for for us. Yeah. That's great. Um, it's interesting with, I think, uh, a lot of the emerging brands at the moment, if you think about particularly the FMCG landscape, and there's lots and lots of new startups and people doing very, very well for themselves. It, often the focus is very niche um, mm -hmm. for these brands. So they might be a vegan snack brand or they might be a sort of um, no sugar, no additives, soft drink, something like that. Quite easy. Well, not easy, but it's it's... There's, a, there's one hurdle is basically getting that initial traction with that niche market that they're going after. But the question that often I think they're, they're asking is how do we then broaden out to a much wider market? So how do we move beyond the, um, I don't know, London sort of foodie person who's really into healthy foods and then moving to a wider audience all across the country? Mm -hmm. how, how would they do that? What would be your advice to them? I'd say pick your, your target retailer carefully. So again, if you think about the macro trends, if, if health and wellness is your key uh, driver for your business and your brand, then start to target the health and wellness retailers out there. Holland and Barrett, for example, great example of how you know they are a health retailer um, and they are more likely to you know uh, cater to your type of customer and also just research I mean research is so important to not just research you know your um, your own brand but also you know find brands and retailers that would be uh, on that health mission as you may be and then make sure that you target them and take your, your message accordingly um, to that retailer and explain to them that, look, this might be uh, an emerging trend, vegan, uh, but we think it's growing and also find examples of how other markets might have done it. So, you know, we often look to, to North America for um, trends that have been successful in those markets or maybe in an Asian market. but. As much research as you can get and examples that to say, look, we've seen how this trend has grown in X market. We predict that it's going to do the same in the UK. And this is why. And this is the kind of um, customer insight we have behind it. Then um, and, and then target your uh, relevant retailer. That is what's going to um, to get the traction. And you used a really um, appropriate word there, George, is, is niche. Mm. So you might be niche in terms of your category or brand, but then find those niche retailers as well, because then there's, there's a match. Mm. So often what happens is that, you know, a brand might be very niche, but then they go to a mainstream retailer and that might not be the right thing. Yes, those mainstream retailers will get you 99% distribution overnight, but then you might not sell because it's too broad and it's too mainstream. So um, it's really important to do you know, your research and understand um, how many vegans are shopping in the larger supermarkets versus you know, Holland and Barrett. And I'm sure there's you know, evidence to demonstrate that you probably have more vegans going to Holland and Barrett. So it's that kind of research that, again, will help you you land with the retailer, but the right retailer. Yeah, 
Because I think uh, from what you're saying as well, it's not good enough just to get stocked by a retailer. You know, that's just the first step. And yes. actually, it's all about distribution. It's all about sales. So you might get, you've just won a contract to be stocked in Sainsbury's and it's all very exciting, but maybe you're only getting stocked yeah. in a certain number of stores across London. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're actually, your product's not shifting. And before you know it, years later you're no longer in Sainsbury's naturally it's been a whole waste of time yeah so it's about developing that relationship making sure that your product sells and trying to um, get them to roll out your product across more stores I suppose yeah and and the responsibility sits with you at the end Mm. of the day to engage your consumer and shopper so if you're coming out with a new product that or a new category that is new to the market and nobody understands yet you need to you know, explain usage, for example, to your end consumer. Um, how do you use a certain product? What's it used for? What are the recipes? You know, when do you have it? Um, understanding the day part opportunities. Is this a healthy product that I consume right after having gone to the gym? Or is this something I have first thing in the morning? Um, and again, all that knowledge sits within a brand owner, but sometimes it's not communicated clearly to the end consumer. The other thing is, you know, I've seen some great brands on Instagram, new brands that, you know, so appetizing, so tantalizing that you think, wow, where can I buy that? And they're like, yeah, you know what? We're in one garden center up north somewhere. And it's like, hmm, okay. Before you start, you know, communicating your brand attributes, have some of those things in place, sell online, even if it's through your own e-commerce website, give people somewhere to go to purchase that. You don't want to have, you know, this amazing opportunity where um, consumers and shoppers are contacting you to say, I really want to buy your brand. And then you let them down by saying, oh, sorry, we're we're not available yet. Mm -hmm. So it's making sure that all those elements are are in place um, before you start, um, you know, sharing and communicating mm-hmm. it to the broader, wider landscape. It's probably worth saying. I mean, this might just be my personal opinion, but I think it starts with having a really good product in the first place. Indeed. You know, uh, marketing and and all kinds of tactics can can go a long way. But if your product doesn't taste good, yeah, then it's going to be difficult to get it away with people. Yeah, I mean, one of the best, most legendary stories comes from the founders of Innocent. Uh, innocent smoothies where they went to a music festival and um, you know they were really proud of their brand but they wanted insight customer insight to see whether they should launch this brand or not there were three bankers and they put two bins out and uh, there was a yes bin and a no bin and they just asked their customers saying here's a sample what do you think Um, do you think we should launch this brand or not yes or no and you know the the yes um, bin was full by the end of the day, so you know simple simple research. Yeah. But look where that brand is today. Yeah. So you know again, um, understanding you know whether your customer your target customer is going to buy it, and then taking you know that leveraging that insight when you show up at a retailer's and say, look, we've done all this research, we have the proof. Uh, here's some video to demonstrate the the sampling and the taste testing, the testimonials. Um, you know, the bigger brands have uh, access to a lot of enormous uh, amounts of data, um, whether it's loyalty card data from the retailers or all the data agencies that they work with. But even you know some of these um, existing brands 
don't often leverage that insight when they go to a retailer. They, they talk about the brand execution and they skip some of the steps in the plan pursued profit. And when we work with a client, we're able to, to pinpoint pretty quickly what steps they've missed because um, the retailer will tell us. They're, you know, they're very open as to um, sharing feedback as to why a, a brand um, didn't necessarily get the listing. Um, and I guess to the brands who you know, have been given really positive feedback and, and are wondering why they haven't had the listings and they've kind of done all the steps that I've highlighted um, today, don't give up. You know, sometimes not getting a listing is, is out of your hands because you know, there's only so much um, space on shelf. Um, there are contracts that are in place with, with brand owners that uh, the retailer can't uh, break at this point in time. Timing is everything. So you know, if you really believe in your brand and you've got the customer insight, you've got the retail feedback, and you're on that higher purpose, that higher mission, just keep going because um, you know, if, it, if it's worthwhile, it, it'll definitely um, get resonance and get listed one day. That's great advice. Um, tell me about your book. I want to find out all about your book. So I'm assuming there are elements of what we've just discussed about you know, the, the techniques that you use with your business. Uh, do they make it into the book? Just, just tell me a bit about the book. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the book has been a, a labor of love. That's something I've been wanting to, to develop for about 10 years now. Um, I'm in the fortunate position that now it's, it's finally coming together. Um, the book is really around uh, that split second decision moment. How are you going to get the, the traction and, and ensure that your brand is sold versus a competitive brand? And the core of the book is, is um, helping uh, the reader with the, the steps, plan, persuade, profit. So I go into a fair bit of detail, um, share case studies. Um, as part of the podcast that we're doing, we're speaking to some of the most you know, recognized brands in the world, disruptive brands. Um, our, our podcasting um, series is you know, talking to the leaders of these brands who have shared their journeys. And you know, some of them have gone through a massive entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey themselves. And some of them have come from a corporate background. So it's, it's really around um, getting that traction. What we're also seeing and, and the introduction uh, in the book is really around um, you know, seeing how some brands are succeeding and others are not and what makes them stand out. And one of the references I use is the Interbrands Global 100 list. So the Interbrand, if, if, for those of you who don't know, is, is this list that's been around. It's an agency um, Interbrand and they have a top 100 um, brand list that's been around since 1970 and they measure the commercial success of brands the top 100 um, every year and over the years um, i've seen the decline of a lot of fmcg brands certainly in the last 10-15 years and on the surface more and more technology brands are up there in the top five. So at the moment, Apple is number one. In the top five, you've got Amazon and Microsoft. Um, and on the surface, it would seem that it's because, you know, they're a technology brand. 
But actually, when you start to take a closer look, the heart of it is, is they put customer at the heart of their brands. You know, they're a 360 brand, meaning that they can offer um, customers, um, you know, what they need at different touch points, at different times of day. Um, they offer convenience. They really start to embed themselves into the, and, and resonate with the lifestyles of their, their customers. So that is ultimately, you know, the, the journey that we go on in the book and how do you leverage that for your brand and the plan persuade profit is, is how you get there. So when can we uh, get our hands on this book? Is it coming out soon? Well, fingers crossed. Um, we will hopefully have the book in market by um, in Q, Q4, so um, September, October time, 2019. Excellent. Do we have a title for, for this yet? Oh, we have a working title, but no, I don't want to say anything too soon, but I'm sure we'll work in the word split second in the title yeah. somehow. Yeah. Watch this space. Indeed. And the podcast is going to be coming out soon, so that's something to look out for as well. Yeah, the podcast will be out um, probably um, by the summer. So um, we've had an amazing response from retailers like Sainsbury's and um, other other brands that I can't share just yet, but also um, brand owners like... Um, uh, Vita Coco and Tony's Chocolonely and uh, Pippa Nut that you know have have embraced this this process as well because I think they're um, you know helping us with our our mission they're on the same mission really about disrupting their categories and having a higher mission definitely um, resonates with with the customer and and as does customer insight which is why they've been so successful so hopefully the podcast will be out in the next couple of months and that'll give people a bit of a taster to what's going to come out in the book no pun intended no ah <laughs> uh, yes i have a little game to play with you mm-hmm. uh, it's called Exciting. Uh, two truths one lie okay okay so i've got down here three statements Two are true, one is not true. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read them out to you one by one. You have to guess which you think is whether you think it's true or whether you think it's a lie. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. Okay. Great. My first uh, statement is: so in Britain, we buy twenty-seven pots of marmite every minute. True. It is true. Mm. It is true. I think what we have to remember is that people, consumers are creatures of habit, aren't they? I think in the past we were extremely, um, we were extremely focused on always buying the same brand. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to change consumer behaviour. So do you think it's difficult for um, emerging brands to challenge those sort of institutions like your Marmites or your... um, Heinz Ketchup. Like a Heinz Ketchup, yeah, yeah, for example. Do you think it's difficult for, for, for emerging brands to sort of challenge those leaders? Um, it depends how, what you mean by challenge. So I think, um, you know, if you're playing in the same category as those, those are iconic brands, you know, and uh, consumers want choice. They want to be able to go to their trusted brands. They want to um, remain faithful and loyal to those brands. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Those brands have been around for a long time and they've been successful because they have listened to customer needs and, um, and, and evolved that customer insight into you know, ex- brand extensions and innovation. And you know, the example you just shared from Marmite, yeah, demonstrates that. 
So I don't think that's necessarily um, a, a competitor to, to emerging brands. I'd say emerging brands need to think about what they stand for. What are they going after? Which category? And what is so unique about their proposition? So, um, you know, if they are going to enter the, the gems and spreads category, you know, what can they offer that, that um, some of the big guys might not have thought of or something that is linked to one of the macro trends or something that they found in another market? And how do they bring that here to Britain? So there's so many other ways to you know, um, go after a category without necessarily having to fall into the trappings of, of copycat behavior. Um, because you know what, we have own label as, as, as another... Lidl and uh, Aldi being yeah. absolute specialists in creating their own version of uh, exactly. products. And also, you know, the, the five top retailers in, in the UK, they have their own label. Mm. So, but what I, what I see with own label is, you know, those brands, uh, own label brands have become brands in their own right. So interestingly enough, I've worked with clients that are, um, their performance is behind own label in their categories, and I won't name names, but simply because the big brands were complacent. They were like, oh, you know, we are X brand, we've been doing it this way, and we've got the market share. Well, you don't have the lion's share because the um, own label invest, the own label teams in a lot of these retailers invest um, so much more in terms of the innovation pipeline. So it's, it's copycat is, is always a dangerous place to play. But again, even though own label brands have offered something unique to the, the shoppers and consumers out there, and I'd give the same advice to emerging brands mm -hmm. as well. And of course, um, in the peanut butter category, there's been a lot of disruption mm -hmm. recently. I've noticed quite a few different uh, brands popping up on the retail shelves. And when you try them, they're, they're great, you know. They're certainly different to your classics or Sunpat or, you know, own label. So that yeah. just speaks for itself, doesn't it? It depends who you're, you're targeting. You know, mm. you there's some um, people that are very loyal to the brands that have been around for a long time, and, and that's great, and, and that works well. Um, but it, again, it really depends on who you're targeting, mm -hmm. who you're trying to reach, um, and um, what you offer to them that's unique. Okay, I've got another one for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, you ready? Ready, yeah. ready. So, 12% um, of consumers conduct online research before making an online purchase. I'm going to say false because I have a stat of 90%. <laughs> so, yes, you're actually right. So, yeah, yeah we've got. Um, We've actually got 75% here, but I think uh, at the end of the day, it's an awful lot. I think it's, um, I mean, let's be honest, most people do do a lot of homework online, don't they, before they make a purchase. Why do you think that is? Because we have access to it. So we have access to, you know, technology in our pockets and we're walking around, we've got time to kill on the drain or uh, wherever we are. And now, you know, we also feel a little bit entitled that if I'm going to give my, my business or my custom to somebody, you know, do they deserve it? What else is out there? And just understanding what um, I get out of one brand versus another 
it takes two seconds to to make that purchasing decision. Why wouldn't you spend two seconds to research, you know, before you make that decision? Yeah, I suppose this is the irony, isn't it, that you can take two seconds to decide on buying something in a in a retail store, mm -hmm. but you've probably been very aware of that product for quite some time beforehand. You maybe had read something about it, you'd seen it a couple of times, you know, you might actually sort of, there's a lot going into that purchase decision yeah. that would have happened online and elsewhere. Yeah, and I, I, at the end of the day, I, you know, I will stress that that two seconds varies by category. If you're mm -hmm. buying a car, you're obviously going to spend mm -hmm. more than two seconds sure. researching a car. Um, but in FMCG, you know, it's anywhere from two to six seconds. And some, you know, some things we do habitually, as you highlighted before, that we are loyal to certain brands because they speak to us. Um, when it comes to other decisions, um, there's so many other factors that, uh, you know, we, we consider because we're bombarded with so many messages throughout the day. You know, there was a stat, I, the last time I heard, you know, we're bombarded with about 78 messages a day um, through different platforms, whether it be your phone or ad campaigns or television or word of mouth, whatever it might be. How do you cut through that noise? And sometimes just getting online, doing a bit of research helps us get that clarity. How important do you think social media is for FMCG brands in particular? Because a lot of them aren't actually selling online. Some will be, but, but most of them will be relying on retail um, sales. So how important really is it to have a strong social presence? I think it's fundamental to a brand strategy just because of the times we live in. Um, people are looking for that multi-touch point, um, 360 uh, brand connection. So it could be your mobile, it could be your uh, online direct-to-consumer, retail. Um, you know, there's so many touch points within that 360 strategy. Again, it does depend on the category and um, your customer. You basically need to be where your customer's at. Now, if you're targeting people that are not on the internet, then, you know, maybe it's less of a priority for you. Um, unlikely that they're not on the internet in this day and modern age, but, but again, think where your customer is at. Um, how do they interact with your um, brand or category? And what does the future look like? So maybe they're not online now, but they will be in the next couple of years. Or maybe I've seen some brands do the reverse where, you know, they were born online but uh, Grace is a great example of that. Grace snacking products, where they were born online, they had a direct-to-consumer uh, business model, and now you see them in retail, in bricks and mortar stores. So it, you know, understanding that customer path to purchase and the customer journey, and how a customer interacts with your brand, is is key, mm -hmm. and that does change sometimes. So following that that customer journey. Um, and, and keeping an eye on it uh, constantly is, is fundamental. Well, you already guessed the lie, so you're gonna know this one is true, but um, this is a stat that we, we found, which I, I mean, it's, it's something I think we're all quite aware of, but when you sort of see it put down in numbers, it's quite shocking, which is that um, last year, um, there was a net store closure 
7,500 retail stores in the UK. So 7,500 more closed down than opened up. Mm-hmm. It's, do you think it's just a, sign of, just a sign of the times? Is that something that's going to just keep increasing and getting, getting more and more? The decline of the high street? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a sad stat. Um, but it is a sign of the times in the sense that, you know, we have so much choice in terms of touch points and how we shop, where we shop. Um, and, you know, just like brands are thinking about their unique selling point, their USP, retailers are under the same pressure. You know, if your retail uh, brand doesn't offer something unique to the shopper, then, then yeah, unfortunately, you're going to be squeezed out of the market. Um, and it's how you re- use that retail space that's really important. So, you know, you could have a very successful bricks and mortar outlet, but that's because you're offering some sort of value to your, your customer. Um, you know, Amazon is a, is a monster company and for so many um, categories and they are, you know, sadly, um, a huge competitor to high street retailers. But again, you know, how do you get that traffic ta- uh, traffic and dwell time within your outlet? And I'd say for, for uh, retailers that have a lot of investment on the high street, think steps ahead, think, talk to your customers, understand what they're looking for and give them, you know, some added incentive to come into your outlet and also, you know, look at your overall business model because you might have um, a high street bricks and mortar um, outlet, but you can build on that by having subscription model, different online uh, touch points, different added value um, propositions that you might not have thought yet, uh, thought of yet that, you know, people like myself can help you with. I guess with the increase in online shopping, mm-hmm. um, that's only going to get more prevalent, isn't it? I mean, I think it's it's increasing every year. Um, I, I, I imagine that people are always going to need to go to a supermarket, but do you think that's going to impact on the way that brands try to sell to retailers? Um, yes and no. I think I think the supermarkets are not going anywhere quickly. I think um, most of us do like to still browse and, you know, um, touch and feel products and, and get to know them. And, and that goes across different categories. So, you know, if you're uh, a fashion retailer, you still want to be able to walk into a store and try on the clothes and see how it looks. And so I don't think bricks and mortar uh, retailers have anything to worry about in the short term. I do think that they need to um, offer an added value to the shopper and consumer to bring more people into their outlets and to understand what they're looking for. Um, customer service and customer experience are essential to, um, to a retailer. Um, so, you know, this, is technology a threat? No, I think it could be uh, a, an enhancement to, to a retailer. But I do think, you know, putting, again, your customer at the heart of of your strategy is is what's going to make you stand out and win in the market versus your competitor. Noop, thanks very much for coming on the show. I'm really looking forward to your book coming out and I will definitely be listening to your podcast. So please do let me know when it's recorded. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, George.
I really hope you enjoyed that episode of The Big Chat. If you like the series, then why not subscribe? And please do head over to YouTube where we've got highlight videos for all the podcasts in the Big Chat series. You can find all the information you'll need in the show notes, but if you can't, then do head over to www.smallfilms.com forward slash big hyphen chat. I look forward to joining you here on the next episode. <laughs>